Welcome to episode two, Jim and Pat's West End Chat, everything about Glasgow West End. My name is Jim Byrne and the Pat in the title is Pat Byrne. Pat's been running the Glasgow West End website since 1999, so hopefully she knows a wee bit about Glasgow West End. In today's episode, Pat interviews Michaela Foster-Marsh. Michaela is a singer-songwriter and she runs a charity called Star Child. I'll just give you a wee teeny bit of background about Michaela. She's a former Evening Times Scots Women of the Year finalist. She wrote the title song for the film Birthday, which is a feature film directed by BAFTA award-winning Alex McCall. She sang at the Monaco International Film Festival. She's performed twice at the Cannes International Film Festival, where, incidentally, a private lunch was held in her honour. Her music has been heard on the hit TV show Dawson's Creek. And Michaela also needs the music for a short documentary called Halo of Hope that picked up a Telefest award. She, as a singer and songwriter, she's had three solo albums out, including a collaboration with composer and producer Kirill Shirakov. I think, hopefully I've got that right. Okay, let's get into the interview. I'm sure you're going to find it extremely interesting. In fact, before we get into the interview, I have to tell you a couple of things. Now, this is only episode two, Pat and Jim's West End Chat, and we are incredibly inexperienced at this podcasting thing. And one of the things we haven't figured out yet is how to get good sound uh, on the first uh, part of the interview. Pat is in the Orin Moor, and she's got a microphone plugged into her iPhone. But halfway through the interview, our phone went off and unbeknown to Pat, that stopped uh, recording. So in the second half of the interview, she actually met Michaela again and she went around to the Beefcake Cafe in Annie's Land for the second part. Unfortunately, there's a lot of background noise and I don't think the microphone worked at all. So it's, I think, just recording on our tiny wee iPhone mic, uh, so I apologise up front. Anyway, let's get into the interview. Okay, so <clears throat> thanks for coming along to meet me, Michaela. You're I mean, welcome. I've been I've been watching um, for a long time now on Facebook and seeing everything about Star Child and all the interesting things we're doing there, and then I couldn't believe as well that you had such a an interesting career mm-hmm. and been you no know, singing and can film festival and songwriting and uh, so I I wanted to meet you and um, get you onto the West End website as a as a local character. That's great. Thank so, you. <laughs> so do you do you actually were you brought up in the West End? I was brought up on Bank Street, um, just around the corner from the university there. And uh, my brother and I, Frankie, were pushed down Byers Road in a twin pram together, one black and one white. So yeah, we were very familiar with the West End from a young age. And so how did you get into the... um songwriting and singing was that, as a child were you interested yeah, in yeah I was always writing from quite a young age and probably songwriting when I was about 14 15 these um, 
little songs, I'd probably be very embarrassed now if anybody ever found them. Um, and then I went to Canada when I was oh, 24, and Frankie died when he was 26, a couple of years later. And I had written a song for the family about Frankie, and I had really no way of, sort of recording it at home. I tried to do a little thing and it was just not very good. And I decided that I would just invest in a wee bit of time at a studio to record this for my family because it was so important. It was in memory of Frankie. So I went into the studio, a studio that I just had heard was, was really good. They'd worked with Alanis Morissette in her um, earlier career and I uh, just booked some time, three hours I think I booked, thinking it would take me forever to record this song. I'd never been in a recording studio. And <laughs> basically the engineer said, I recorded the song, I just sat down, played the piano, sang and that was it. And he said, that's you done. He said, but you've booked three hours. And I was like, is that is this, this the song recorded? And he was like, yeah, like what are you going to do? Have you got any more songs? So I said, yeah, a handful of stuff. So he said, well, why don't you just sit there and play through your songs and I'll just sit in my little cubicle here. <laughs> so I did. And then it wasn't even a couple of weeks later, maybe a week later, I got a phone call from the studio, from the, the owner of the studio saying, um, would you like to come in and talk to me because I think you've got a real talent here and um, I don't understand why you're just doing this for your family and friends. So I went in to speak to him and then one thing led to another and before I knew it I was um, getting offered to meet with different producers in Toronto. Was it Toron long story was it Toronto short, you were seeing? I was in Ottawa at the time mm -hmm. and um, it kind of quickly spread this demo. Um, I had done, you know, unwittingly, I had sort of obviously put this um, six or seven tracks, I think it was six tracks on it, and um, then EMI Records uh, wanted to do a, a deal with a producer just to, to work on an album to see how it would go, and so I was put with Greg Cavanaugh, and we worked on the Fairy Tales and Death of Innocence album, and then EMI story of my life, EMI, after loving the album, um, decided that they didn't feel it was commercial enough um, for them to invest anymore in. Um, so it got some real critical acclaim at the time. It went into McLean's magazine as one of the um, top ten albums in Canada. Um, and it got a lot of coverage, but we ended up signing an independent um, distribution deal with Page Oasis at the time. And so I did some gigs, a lot of travelling about and stuff. Um, but it didn't become, obviously, the, the huge success that we'd hoped for. And then the second album, I Undid Orion's Belt, was a lot more self-indulgent for me. I knew it wasn't going to be a commercial album, but I loved Greek mythology. Mm -hmm. And I wanted so to do... So what was it called, Michaela? I Undid Orion's Belt. Right. Which is a <laughs> bit of a play on... Um, in Egyptian mythology... The gateway into the Eternal Kingdom was through Orion, this, Orion's belt, and the pyramids matched up to his belt. So they believed that it was that whole gateway into the spiritual realm and whatnot. And obviously, um, Orion was also this big, handsome, mythological giant, the huntress of, of the virgin goddesses. So there was a kind of play on that whole thing about... Um, Sort of sexual relationship, perhaps, with this you know handsome warrior type, um, and that um, ultimately 
it was more like, um, I don't know how, quite how to explain it, but yourself. By undoing his belt, it was actually a gateway to the spiritual realm. <laughs> <That laughs> Complicated very, relationship. That yeah. is very imaginative. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so yes, how did so that go? It, it didn't go very well. Um, but the film, some people in the film industry got interested in it because it was very thematic. But um, my producer had said to me at the time, Michaela, you know, this is never going to fly. But um, I wanted to do it, and it was phenomenal. I got to work with Kirill Shirokov, who um, was a Russian um, orchestrator. And um, he basically said to me, I couldn't afford him, and he basically said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll do some of your orchestrations if you sing for me, because I've written some songs, but I need your voice. So basically, from the Orion album, I ended up working with Kirill, and then did the third album called Seriously Red. That's a great name. Yeah. And yeah. that goes with you, with your ear and Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and again, it was a play on being seriously read and also read as an R-E-A-D. So there's a kind of, like, it right. was read, mm-hmm. but it, there's a double. That too, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the albums had success and then I had, um, but not huge. The, you know, the record deal, unfortunately, didn't come. Again, with seriously read. We had a record deal pending in Germany that, that didn't work out. And I felt very much like I was beating my head against a brick wall. Like I had lots of people loving the stuff, lots of um, critical acclaim, but I just wasn't able to to really push that the big door open. But I still had, you know, my audience out there and a fan base that was strong, and I did it for you know quite a number of years. So did you then start? That became your full time mm-hmm. work. That oh was yeah, marvelous. that's what I did in, in mm-hmm. Canada, mm-hmm. and um, it was a fantastic. Um, it was it was a chapter, you know, mm-hmm. of my life, which was really good, um, and things changed whole direction for me. I guess after Mum died and I came back here, um, left my husband, went through a huge personal kind of transition. But like all these things, it takes a while, and. Um, but slowly but surely, I found that I just wasn't so driven to do the music. I wasn't driven to perform. I was still driven to create and to write. But the need to perform kind of left me. Um, I, I didn't need that kind of immediate gratification that I had craved, I think, when I was younger. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what, um, when did you come back? I came back in... Now, 2007, um, on a permanent basis, but before that, I'd been looking after my mum, so I'd been here for a few years, um, and I was kind of going back and forward, which was not ideal also for being in the business that I was in. It was really not good for the album because I had released, but the I Under a Rise Belt was in the middle of being produced. But I made the personal decision I wanted to be with my mum, and I don't regret that for five minutes. But it had a bit of an impact on my career, and um, but at the same time, I was sort of, I think, beginning to lose that drive that you have, and you need an incredible amount of drive in that business to really succeed in it. And I was getting a bit, bit older, um, about forty by then. So. <laughs> um, I was just feeling I just didn't want to still do the club scenes no. and things like that. I just mm-hmm. I needed a break away from mm-hmm. it, and also, you know, the disappointments with the record companies yeah. and things like that. I just I think that you know quite a lot of people um, 
I think it's harder if you're on your own, if you're a solo artist. Oh, yeah. But I think even if you're in a band, if you're in a band where you could have any any number of bands with equal talent, equally uh-huh. good songs and whatnot, uh-huh. but you maybe get somebody who is driven towards success uh-huh. and driving, driving, driving uh-huh. forward. Obviously, you need a bit of luck as well. Yeah. But it's not always, you know... It's very, very difficult if you're on your own yeah. and you're creating and, uh-huh. you know, putting things out mm-hmm. to also be trying to, um, you know, as you say, open other doors. Uh-huh. Yeah, no, definitely. But you've enjoyed yourself. I did. I mean, I got to travel so much and meet some incredible people. I think to have it as your full-time job, uh-huh. something that you love doing, uh-huh. that in itself is success. Yeah, no, and I mean, it was a... You know, my producers, the musicians I worked with, I worked with some fantastic people. And I saw that you um, you played some really fabulous places that, uh, in a Cannes Film Festival. Yes. That must have been amazing. <laughs> it was great. I did that twice. And Monaco, Monaco Film Monaco. Festival. And um, then that led me to the Cannes Film Festival. And again, it was just fantastic. You know, I came out in this big balcony and, you know, they've got all these guests out there and it was just very dramatic. And um, just, you know, a great experience that, you know, other people maybe haven't had the chance to do. So I'm really grateful. I don't think a lot of people have had the chance to do that. (laughs) No, it was was wonderful to be part of that festival. And, you know, we got invited to all these parties and things like that. um, But, yeah, you see another side of life which was really good and, and of course now I'm doing the complete opposite from that kind yeah, of Yeah, I know, the, I mean the, that, uh, um, are you, you mean like Star Child? Yeah. I mean yeah. that, that's, I, I, I can't believe how, it only seems as if you started that five minutes uh-huh. ago and, uh-huh. and you know I've watched the, you know the, on Facebook, the, the school getting built and so t- tell me about it and how it came about and oh my goodness well I, I had written a book um, called The Matoki Tree which was very loosely based on my brother's mother we knew nothing about Frankie's mum and after he died I'd always had this curiosity about who this woman was and I guess about part, his mother uh, yeah because we were so close we grew up like twins but obviously he had had a different mum and for me, it was always like, who who was this African So did your mum and dad adopt Frankie? They adopted him when he was 13 months old. And um, he was in Tanker Hall, baby's home in Kilmarnock. And he had been a hard-to-place child. They'd, they'd wanted a child that maybe wasn't a brand-new baby, which was what everybody did in the 60s and 70s. It was kind of cloaked in secrecy and... Um, but they said they would take a child, maybe disabled or an older child, a hard-to-place child. And the agency came back and said, well, we've got a little black boy who we've not been able to find a home for because of his colour, basically. And, I mean, you're dealing with a time, 1967, Martin Luther King was, was shot dead. So there was a civil rights movement. There was a lot going on at that particular point in time with racism. And so my parents did a very brave thing and, and um, adopted Frankie. I mean, they didn't see it as brave. They just fell in love with Frankie and, and, and he came to live with us. And you were a baby? I, we were identical in age. There was three I mean, that is also remarkable yeah. that they should take a baby. Mm-hmm. I mean, most people are taking a baby when they have 
no baby, but I mean, that was just... Yeah, and, and I had an older brother. He was eight years older, and I think my parents thought it would have been nice if the baby child was in between. That was another uh-huh. reason why they would have taken an older child. But, um, so we got wee Frankie, and I got a wee brother, a new brother to play with, um, and it was, it was great. And um, so the, the book kind of was part of the grieving process, I think, even although it's been a long time, you, you don't ever go over that loss. So um, he had an, an accident? Or he was died a fire? in a fire in Glasgow, mm-hmm. yeah, and he was 26, and it was just a freak accident. Um, it was a power failure. And during the night, the little hard fire came on, and I don't think he obviously knew it was on. It was like an on-off switch in the light, and it came on during the night and smouldered. Oh yeah, it's tragic. Yeah, it was just really tragic, and certainly a, a light went out in my life that day. But from that has been, you know, the Star Child, his legacy is living on through that. And sorry, I interrupted you. You were saying about the book. Oh no, mm-hmm. yeah. So I, I basically I had come across all the adoption papers um, after my mum had died. I inherited all the paperwork and sat down Monday and just started to write. And I'd always, like I say, been writing from a young age, but it was mainly lyrics. But my producer always used to say, "Oh my gosh, you keep writing and writing and writing." And <laughs> we would always have to edit so much down for songwriting. So. It was just kind of natural for me to do that, get to the next stage. And before I, I knew it, I had finished a novel and had a major agent in London, Ali Gunn, interested in the novel. And I'd gone to London to meet with her. And um, I, she couldn't believe I hadn't actually been in Uganda because I'd written about Uganda. And I said to her, well, don't worry, because I'm going. And I'd, I'd planned to go on a trip to Uganda. And it was really for research for the book to make sure that the book was right because it was looking very much like Ali and I were going to be working together. And she wanted me to work on an edit of the book. So I took myself off to Uganda and... Okay, it's at this point that the microphone failed and we magically moved from Oren Moore to the Beefcake Cafe in Angeland. Hi, Michaela. Um, it's lovely here. Thanks for, thanks for bringing me along. Yeah, the last time we were talking, um, you were telling me, obviously, about Frankie and about the, the terrible accident and how you were keen to find out about his family and went to Uganda. So I was wondering how you got on there. Well, I went to Uganda, as I say, for research for the book, but the strangest, strangest thing happened. And I actually found his family. Uh, I didn't go to Uganda to find his family. But um, just by a very bizarre coincidence, um, I'd interviewed uh, a missionary who had worked at Gaza High School. And she was a little bit nervous. I think she thought that um, I was a reporter. And she asked me if I would bring the adoption papers with me. So I brought Frankie's adoption papers with me and um, I was interviewing her for research for the Matoki tree for the book and she said, when, when we actually had um, lunch and everything and she looked at the papers, she was tapping her fingers going, I know that name, Vivigira, I know the name, Vivigira, why do I know this name? And um, a couple of weeks, thank you. Thank you. Thanks, 
boys. A couple of weeks later, I got an email from this lady saying that she remembered where she knew the name from and that she believed that Frankie's grandfather had been the pastor of her school from 1950 to 1960 in Gaza High School. Amazing. And I had written about his mother being at Gaza High School. And um, so I wanted to go see Gaza. And I mean, now I really had to go to Gaza High School. So when I got there, I thought there may be a picture, if I was lucky, of Frankie's grandfather. Never in a million years did I ever imagine that I would discover that his mother had actually attended that school and that there was a relative of Frankie's there. And um, that was just a total fluke. The day I had gone to the school, um, the, the head teacher Vicky, had invited me on a public holiday because she said she would have more time to talk to me because during the week when the girls were there, she didn't have any time. So I went along there on a public holiday and I was sitting talking about um, the grandfather. You know, maybe there was a picture of him. And a woman walked past the office and the head teacher called her in and she said, um, Phoebe, didn't you say something about what you gave her to me the other day? And it turned out that Phoebe had been asked to compile a book of the old girls, just like the week before we arrived in Uganda. And she'd found a picture of Janet with Yugira, and that had been, that was my brother's mother. And Phoebe had left her paperwork. She wasn't supposed to be in school that day. She had left her paperwork and decided to come back for it, not thinking anybody would be so at the school. So many coincidences. And we're sitting there, and it turns out that she's an aunt, a relation. And about four hours later, I was sitting in the company of Frankie's brother, who's called Frank, who has the same name and looks mm -hmm. like Frankie. I saw the... Um video of you meeting him, it's very, very moving. Yeah, it was And he was, he was just overwhelmed. It was an overwhelming experience, it was, but the way it came about, it was just a, a, just a fluke. I mean, I went to interview this missionary, and it, it turned out there's a family, it's like there's a connection. Of 41 million people in Uganda, and I oh found the God. family. It's like finding a needle in a haystack, that, and I hadn't tried, I mean, I really hadn't no, had to try that. It's just meant to be. And um, so, once meeting the family and um, having a, a sort of live connection there and seeing the level of poverty and working in one of the babies' homes there, I just felt any one of them could have been Frankie. And I, I came home feeling I had to try and do something. And so we decided then, um, with the help of um, some friends basically here, to set up Star Child in, in Frankie's memory. And, the idea initially was to maybe build a school because his mother had been a teacher. And then once I started to tour around Uganda and went to lots of schools, I discovered that what was really missing was a creative arts programme because it's not part of the curriculum. And both Ronnie and myself are in the arts and creative spirits. And we felt, my goodness, if you're not academic in this country, what chance have you got? So we decided that um, maybe rather than build a normal school, it would be beneficial to build a school for creative arts where the children can be introduced to painting and drama and music and things like that. So um, basically, we, we, we called upon the artistic community. Ronnie had a brainwave, Art for Africa. We knew a lot of artists' friends. 
we had some friends that had um, some galleries and um, McTeer's auctioneers and before we knew it we had enough to do Art for Africa and we've done that. We did it three years in a row but after the second year we'd raised enough money to build the school. I saw the, um, on Facebook, you know, starting off and the school being built and then the children and the uniforms and I, I mean it seems like just yesterday that that it started. I know, I can't believe it. In two years. There's so much has been achieved. We, we built the school. I mean, we had we started in 2013, and, um, you know, within two years we had the school built. I mean, I'm not slagging other charities, but some are still waiting to build the school ten years later. How um, many kids go? We've got 110 that register for the arts. Mm-hmm. And it's open at the weekends to the public, so that the community basically use it at the weekends. And in the evenings, some women are learning to sew and do tailoring and things like that. So it must have made such a colossal impact to that community. I think it has done, yeah, yeah. It's it's more like a bit of a community centre as well. And um, now we're really trying to open it up. We've set it up for the most marginalised and most vulnerable, and unfortunately. The most marginalised being people with, with, with disabilities and autism are actually not getting to utilise it because it, it, there's such a stigma and they're hidden. Um, a lot of children, particularly with autism, are they're basically chained up and left. And they, they, they believe the woman and child is cursed. So we've now got a very big project ahead of us trying to break down those stigmas and myths. Mm-hmm. And I'm working with William Woods Communication Support Service Group with autism and Melo Parenting. And we're going to try very hard to try and break down some of those myths and stigmas. Um, because I think the school could be ideal for some of those children mm-hmm. and, and also people with some disabilities. Mm-hmm. And we were just shocked that actually those people were not coming to the school and it's because they're so hidden. Mm-hmm. and shunned by society. So we're really attempting to change that. I expect you're um, getting to know the community and the problems, yeah. different problems from... from you, you, you couldn't anticipate. No, when I started out, I had no idea um, some of the, the social problems that exist. And also, well, one of the, the other main things we have, we have a school that we support, Mango Tree School in Ginger. And um, some of the, the girls there, I mean, they're, 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 it's terrible, but they're being raped on a regular basis as well, sometimes by people we know within the family. And, um, you know, that's not our department, but obviously we're, we can't get involved too much in social work, but we can help. Mm-hmm. Um, but that school is uh, very close to our hearts and we do a lot of work there and we provide a lot of scholastic materials um, and um, the uniforms and we're now helping to get um, this, this P7s into secondary school. The Gift of Education is a big programme we're doing. At the so moment. is that uh, unusual for them to go on? Yeah, yeah. I mean these kids have maybe walked up to five, six kilometres to get a, a free education at this school. And now we've been working there for about six years, and so this is the first group, P7, that are getting ready to go into secondary. And they just had no hope of going to secondary unless somebody was going to be able to pay for their education, because they've got, most of them have no parents, or maybe one parent, but most are orphans. And uh, somebody has to, to help them, or they would just be 
getting married. By the time they were 13, 14, they'd be married and with no hope of anything. And they've got a good primary education. Mm -hmm. one, no, it's absolutely incredible. Did I pick up right that every single one of them had passed to go? Yes. My yes. God. When we were out in October, November, they were sitting their, their exam to get into secondary school and um, we had told them if they passed, we would be able to get them, we would pay their fees. And um, they had their exam, it was the next day actually, we were so nervous for them and we just heard a few weeks ago that every one of them passed. That is just, it's unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, that never happens here. No, I know, I you know. know. I, mean, I mean, I know, like, comprehensive, I'm thinking back to the 11 plus, mm -hmm. you know, that, yeah. um, like to move on. You didn't, people didn't know their destination, but not everybody would have been like getting that um, pass mark. Yeah, well, they, they, they passed. I think it was a good incentive. They must have stayed up all night studying um, because suddenly they realised they had that, that opportunity. I, I guess they were hope, hopeful. I had gone out about um, eight months before and they were basically asking. And I had no idea. I was like, how on earth is Starship going to be able to afford to send these kids to school? We just didn't have the funds for it. But um, six local schools in South Lanarkshire and Williamwood High in, um, in William, well, Williamwood, Eaglesham, um, they um, agreed to take on a child each and then the rest were private friends that sponsored. So it's 20, £20 a month, £250 a year to totally transform a child's life and give them the gift of education so they can go on and, and break that poverty cycle. So the only hope is if they can get an education, they can break out of the, that cycle. And they're clever kids, so there's 11 of them. And then we made them promise, each of them, that um, once they got their job as a doctor, lawyer, whatever it was, they've all got big ambitions, that they would come back and sponsor another child at the school and help them through their education. So they were just delighted to do that. Yeah. So that helps them get back and remember, you know, this good thing. It must be so gratifying for you. It was amazing. I think, like, opening the school was the highlight of my life. And then being able to tell those 11 children that they had a future was, uh, it's, an, it's an incredible feeling. It's a, it's a fantastic project, it really is. It's, I mean, uh, you, you know, you see these big, huge charities and yet that's a tiny, we're just really, you know, very, very small in that sense, but it's, yeah. it, it's the ideas and the passion and, you know, the, the care. It's, yeah. it's really been great. So how is it actually funded? Well, I know you've explained about this sponsorship, but the, the, whole, the overall project. The overall project, the money came from mainly Art for Africa. Um, so we had that every... So can you explain a wee bit about yeah. Art for Africa? Yeah, we basically, we had a lot of friends, um, artist friends, and then Ronnie got this brainwave to do Art for Africa. We had got some art from some friends to do an extravaganza, that, the first thing we had at Shalons Academy. And the art sold really well, and we had about eight pieces, and then it was basically just an extension of that. We decided um, to basically put a call out on Facebook to all our artist friends. Unfortunately, they got on board. They shared it with their friends and brought in more artists. And I think the second one made 180 pieces of art. And then McTears agreed to do the auction for us. And so we basically raised the money over two years to build the school from the Art for Africa and then pay for the teachers' salaries and, and stuff. So it was, I mean, the, really to me, the artistic community have ownership of that school as much as Star Child and um, the galleries that helped us, this old art. And um, Bruce and, and Margaret there, uh, by distinction, 
um, and Jomal Holland at Hidden Lane. They've, you know, they, they, all of these people helped us out on and more McTears and, and the artists themselves. So, you know, we're so grateful for their participation. The art, you know, I've, I've seen the art for Africa, and oh, it looks fabulous on Facebook. And then when you're, um, you know, preparing the project, and then some art arrives, and then more mm-hmm. arrives, and it, you know, it's, it, it, it really, really is. It's very attractive. Yeah, there was such a generosity of spirit, I think, um, and goodwill with art in Africa, um, and it, it was it was incredible. And then, of course, the people that bought the art, you know, they 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 were fantastic as well. I mean, there was just so much enthusiasm for it, and I think. You know, sometimes the art didn't get as much money as it, we know it should have done, but it didn't matter. The fact is that the artist gave us it, people bought it, and we were, we managed to build a school because of that. It's unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, and we, and the lives of that transforms. I mean, it's going to be there long after I'm dead. Yeah, it will still be there. It's, it's a very time. strong structure. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it will be around, and, and hopefully lots of children will, you know, they might become great artists, writers painter, you know, musicians because of it, or they might just get great joy out of it, it doesn't matter so it's changed their lives it has yep, it has, I just wish all the artists could come out and see it who knows, I think a few of them are planning to, I hope they do I hope they do, yeah if we get one of the airlines involved and they could fly out that would be nice, wouldn't it so, um are you planning any more Art for Africa at the moment or what fundraising have you got on? Not at the moment, it's just become a bit too much for Ronnie at the moment um, so we're not going to be doing that um, this year anyway um, but we're hopeful that we might manage to get some funding through DFID, the Department for um, International Development so I had a meeting with the Secretary of State which, which went well and um, I think we're on DFID's radar now finally so as a small charity, it's very hard to break down that door. But we've been recognised for the work we're doing. And um, I'm hopeful they're coming to visit our school on February the 21st, coming up. Well, that's fabulous. Yeah, it's quite a... It's, so, so you're going out then? I'm not going out, no. I, I think the people there are, are you know, Pastor Sam and, and the directors of the school will be fine. We've got Moses Apelaga, Dr. Moses Apelaga, who was a GP here, who was on our board for many years. He's now back living in Uganda. So he'll take them to the school, and I'm sure it'll be fine. I don't need to be there. Well, that, in a way, it's probably better that you're not, actually, no. yeah. because then there's... It's, yeah. it's normal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, but the kids, the kids, well, I'm sure will, will do well. They'll impress. Yeah, I hope they impress. I'm sure they will impress. I, them, I, I, hope you some, know. I hope something comes out of that. So, 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 so deserving. Mm-hmm. If you had that, um, and it would. I mean, that's the sort of things that the, the government should be doing. Mm-hmm. You know, the international aid, you know, things that are seen to be working. Yeah. Well, I mean, that, that's... Well, this that is, grassroots. Yeah, this has been the, the, the problem. It's been really difficult for small charities to break down Diffid's door, but finally, they've got a pilot for four years to offer small charities um, some funding, but there's been a huge take-up on it and a huge amount of applications for the funding. But we've been shortlisted, I know that much. So we'll hear That's it That's it, some fingers crossed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So were you... <coughs> excuse me. Were you um, put up for an award? 
personally? For yourself? Is it, was that the... Was it Women of the Year? Or? Oh, yeah, I was a finalist in Scots Women of the Year, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. So I hope you told them that when you met them. I did. Oh, I don't know. I didn't. <laughs> but I think it was me. I had the Point of Light Award, Prime Minister's Award. That was mentioned. Mm-hmm. But um, so yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, my. It's nice to get recognised. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was yeah. lovely. It's nice to get recognised, but it, it's also pretty significant for the project. It's good for the charity yeah. because it gives us a bit of kudos, a bit of Absolutely. credibility. So, you know, and, and obviously it's on the website, so if they go to the website, they can see that, and, and that, that all helps. It takes a long time to build these relationships, and you can understand why. I mean, as, as they would say to me, you know, if we give you 50,000, or well, they're not going to be giving us 200,000, but if they were giving us, you know, vast amounts that they give to other charities, they still need to know they can trust what we're going to do with that money. Um, and I can understand, especially with some of the scandals that have hit the papers recently, it's it's getting trickier, it's getting really hard, and they need to know who they're working with. Absolutely. No, no I think that's... They all sort of... All the different points, all build together, don't they? All yeah. Sort of stronger oh. than the parts. It's, well, and we have so many other projects there now, that's the thing. I mean, we have a women's project with animal husbandry, we have we have farming, agriculture, which sustains um, about 20 odd women and their families. And we have cows, pigs. That's um, fantastic. Chickens, rabbits. Yeah. I want to go. Yeah, well, you can come anytime, but <laughs> you can come, that would be brilliant. So the women there, we gave them 10 sewing machines, fabrics, and they make uniforms now for the local schools. Um, most of these women are illiterate, so we're now trying to get, get them some reading and writing. And they're able to feed their families now because of that project. And they have um, seeds, they plant seeds. I mean, it costs less than £100. And they plant all these seeds. And I mean, in Uganda, you just you know put your feet in the ground, you grow. I mean, it's, it's very fertile. Although there has been some issues with drought recently. But usually, you know, there's a significant amount of rain and sunshine and things go, so they can live off the land, but um, you just need to give them some skills, farming skills, and um, now they're breeding pigs, they know how to do that, and they're selling the pigs. And it's just completely something simple like that has transformed the whole community. So there's there's that project, then the sanitary care project for girls, and to keep about 300 girls in school, we do that every year. Um, so it's it's yeah, it's amazing. Well, it's amazing. I, I hadn't I hadn't realised that there were so many other aspects to it. You know, I mean, I knew about the school, but I hadn't realised you had all these yeah. other projects. Yeah, yeah. So and you know, right right now, I think my, my biggest fear right now is getting those. There's going to be eleven children next year looking for sponsorship to get into secondary school. Mm-hmm. So that's. That's what I'm focused on at the moment, is trying to find... I think you'll do it. I hope so. You will. So today, um, I saw something about an, an event coming up about Star Wars. Ah, Stars for Star Child, yes. What's it called? Stars for Star Child. That's, um, that's Ronnie, um, who is really... Honestly, I mean, I couldn't do um, Star Child without him. He does so much to help, but um, and he was in the film. He, well. yeah, he had a part um, in Star Wars, a small part, and it's unbelievable what you know a few minutes on that screen in Star Wars has done. It's transformed his life. 
and he gets invited to these um, Comic Con conventions and things like that. Um, so he, he travels quite a bit going to these things and so um, he managed to rope a lot of the guys into helping out Star Child. And so there's Stormtroopers, there's Chewbacca, there's Batman, Spider-Man, Dalek, all these characters are going to be there. And then Jimmy V, who was the actual R2-D2 um, in the, the last film. Um, is it The Last Jedi? Yeah, I think it's The Last Jedi. Um, Roddy was in The Force Awakens, which was the one before. So they're all going to be there on March the 3rd at Netherly Church on Scout Hall. Fantastic. Yeah, it should be quite an event. Yeah, yeah. It's absolutely brilliant. So we have all these different unique events. We, we don't tend to do the standard Hilton um, charity balls. <laughs> <laughs> we, we always do something a bit different. But this different. is, people will love that. I hope so. I think, well, I know. I mean, I think so. The kids in particular. But as Ronnie says, it's a lot of adults come to these things as well. Yeah, I'm, com- I'm going to come. Oh, great, great, great. <laughs> Fantastic. That's great. Yeah. It's great. No, that yeah. sounds great. No, it's just amazing, you know, all that you've done. I mean, you, you had such an interesting career anyway, you know, so yeah. that in itself is, is fascinating. I think and, it's all hell. But, you know, I think that, you know, con- considering what happened with Frankie and the heartbreak, mm-hmm. that this is just, it's if something's going to come out of it, nothing better could have happened. Oh yeah, I mean his legacy is living on, well and truly living on in, in Uganda, that's for yeah. sure. And a family that never knew him, and they are now involved in a, a project that, um, in memory of a brother that they didn't know existed. No, it's, it's absolutely quite incredible. It's, it's incredible, it's lovely. Mm-hmm. So, thanks very much. Thank you. It's just... Um, you know, I really think it's fabulous what you've done. Thanks so much, Pat. Thanks a lot. And thanks for introducing me to Beefcake Cafe in Annie's Land. Yes. Don't know what they're up to at the moment. No, I know, I know, I know. They're making a lot of noise. They're making bread, I think. But um, no, the um, Beefcake are fantastic because they're um, the first uh, place to take on Pounds for Posho. Uh-huh. So they're going to help with the feeding programme um, to help feed some children in Uganda. So it's amazing. So part of the the takings here will be going to feed children over there. So well, that's a great um, ethical cafe. It is, and I'll, they're just around the corner from me, so I'll definitely be You might be their best customer. Yeah. <laughs> so thanks so much, Michaela. Um, it's been really, really super. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for your time, Pat. Thank yeah. you. Okay, that was Pat Byrne speaking to Michaela Foster Marsh. I hope you enjoyed that. I have to apologise once again for the for the sound. We are novices, and uh, the more podcasts we do, hopefully the better we will get at it. If you've got any questions or if you would like to get in touch, my email address is jim at glasgowestend.co.uk. Pat's email address is pat at glasgowestend.co.uk. We really would love to hear any suggestions you've got for things you'd like to hear on the podcast people you'd like us to interview events you would like to hear about and authors whatever anything you can think of we would love to hear from you okay so thanks for listening and look forward to the next one bye